there. Welcome to the Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality, delving into the palm-powered world of herbalism. So do you know your echinacea from your eleutherococcus or your polyphenol from your polysaccharides? Whether you're a budding herbalist, an inquisitive health professional, or a botanical beginner, Herbcast is here to inform and inspire you on your journey to integrating herbs in our everyday lives. So settle down, turn us up, and let's start today's episode of the Herbal Reality Herbcast. Well, I'm here with Anne Umbrecht. It's great to be here with you. It's great to be here with you. And um, we're old friends now and have met in various herbal farms from our both of our love of, of uh, herbalism and, uh, and the supply chain, the value chain. Um, Anne is a writer and an anthropologist and is the founder and leader of the Sustainable Herbs Programme, which is focused on education, really, Anne, isn't it? The Sustainable Herbs Programme focused on education around the whole herbal industry. Yeah, it's really trying to have conversations and inspire conversations around asking where your herbs come from and why we should all care. Well, you know, it's one of my favorite sites and it's a, a source that I go to all the time. You know, tell us a little bit about how you got interested in herbalism and how the, the wonderful world of plants uh, inspired you. So herbalism, I first, I met Deb Sewell, who's an herbalist in Maine, and um, I had just come back, recently come back from Nepal and mm -hmm where I was working in the mountains in Northeast Nepal, looking at the relationship between this uh, farming community and the, and the environment. And, you know, I had a lot of romantic ideas about their connection with the earth and the environment and indigenous ways of knowing that, you know, I found, of course, it's much more complex on the ground. But what I did experience was this sense of the relationship that the men and women I got to know had with the earth and the the land around them as you know something that was a give and take reciprocity they'd make offerings to the ancestors and the ancestors would bring the rain and and that sense of the aliveness of the world and so then i came home and of course was disillusioned by you know culture shock and coming back to the united states and this massive consumption and disconnection and treating the world as an object and in that context, I met Deb Sewell, who had this unique way of interacting with the plants as something living. And she said, oh, go to the Northeast Women's Herb Conference. And so I did that. And there, which is organized by Rosemary Gladstar, and I met Rosemary, who is like a plant and, um, and it sort of exudes that sense of that aliveness. And so then I went to study and did an apprentice program with her. And, and when I was there, it was, you know, I was, it was incredibly empowering to learn how to make remedies in my kitchen, like teas and tinctures. And that drew me to it. But it was also this kind of deeper relationship with the plants as living entities that's really at the heart of traditional Western herbalism. And that kind of caught me. Hmm. Wonderful. So sounds like you first got connected by seeing the farmers in action with the respect they were showing to the cycles and the seasons and the, and the cycles of life. And then came back into herbalism 
afterwards in a way. Lovely. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so when you were studying, were you really exploring the plants as alive? You know, what was that you alluded to, the, the idea of the plants being living entities? How, how did you experience yeah. that? Different aspects, you know, one, and thinking back to as Rosemary was teaching at, at that time, you know, in that, that the idea that in the, of natural system, medicine systems around the world, that in nature is the healing, mm. that it's, it, it's that wholeness. It's also the ways Rosemary would invite us to into a, the world of like plant spirit medicine and mm. ask questions of the plants and listen to the plants, not in a naive way. You know, once she sent us off into the, the woods in, on the mountain at, where Sage Mountain was located and to find a plant and to ask questions and listen. And someone came back and, and they said, oh, this plant asked me to eat it. <laughs> and and she said, you know, she went through her, you know, first you have to identify it and be really clear and field guides and everything. And she said, you know, there's poison hemlock down there. And, and you know, so it's not just this woo-woo-ness, yeah. but like settling into ourselves in that way and then mm. seeing what arises of an image, a word or something like that. And that really... I'm mm. curious about that aspect. But then it's also just that, you know, the sense now that everybody's talking about from Robin Kimmermer's book, but of the honorable harvest, that you don't harvest everything, that you, you know, you, that there's a give and take. Well, I like what you, what you say there about the origins of Western herbalism, you know, being rooted in this relationship with the plant, really, and how often when we experience uh, plants that are herbalism, you know, it's as a product, isn't it? Or it's as a, a package thing. So, um, you know, it doesn't surprise me that you went from that part of your experience into really looking at how the herbs were grown or harvested and looked after in their, in their journey to the sort of user, if you like, the, the end experiencer. And um, tell us a little bit about that then. How did you go from that quite deep personal experience? It sounds like quite profound into the more, um, is it sort of ethnobotanical really, just a, a journey into the, into the farms and the fields? So Terry and I made Newman because I, I, Terry, my husband's a filmmaker. So as I was studying herbal medicine and I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Ooh. It's kind of what I do. I suddenly, this is the answer to everything. And I thought, here is this incredible philosophy around healing and wholeness and working with plants. But most people only experience it as products on a shelf. And so we made Newman to really celebrate the values at the heart of traditional Western herbalism. And then as we were showing Newman, I was screening it in different communities. What struck me was people who already loved herbs and used them got it. And they're like, yes, this is the message I've been waiting for. And those who maybe only bought organic food, shopped at the farmer's market and would only feed their kids organic food, didn't think twice about giving them aspirin or Advil or anything that a doctor says from a pharmacy, that audience, the film, we couldn't reach because mm -hmm. herbal medicine reached them through the supplement aisle. Mm -hmm. And so I realized to reach that audience, I had to go to the supplement aisle. And that's when, so 
the questions I was asking there were what intention means when these herbs are sourced from around the world. Like, what are those values about herbal medicine? How do they stand up in these products that are made by people who don't understand herbal medicine and aren't in there for herbal medicine and things like that. But actually it um, starts, it started because I w- was working on a book and I wanted to write this book about following herbs through the supply chain and had these book proposals and things like that and um, needed to get overseas in order to begin to tell some of those stories and, but couldn't tell the book proposal. And so I just purchased a ticket myself and visited these fair wild producers in Eastern Europe. And as I was there, I thought these, those of us using these products at the end need to see this, like not just through my words, but through video, like what are the steps? And so that was the birth of the sustainable herbs program was really beginning to tell those stories just what happens when an herb, mm. who's growing it, who's harvesting it, who's cult, you know, who's, what does processing even mean? All mm. of those mm. sort of things. Mm. Where are the herbs and your cup of tea from? Where are they from in your capsule or the herbs you're using? So it sounds like you felt there was potentially a, a disjoin in the values, that there was this intention and this aspiration and um, uh, a rather deep and profound connection it sounds like lots of people were having with nature but then you're saying that in the practice of it or the expression of it you felt that or you wanted to explore whether there was a a synergy there or was there actually a a contradiction and and did you and what did you find along the way complexity (laughs) (laughs) yeah i found like so and this is how, why I wrote the business of botanicals as I did, like as my journey, because I found a lo- I was incredibly naive in part because of what I learned about herbal medicine and the relationship and all of that in this kind of romanticized way. And then the reality of sourcing botanicals, sourcing enough raw material to feed this demand that the herb community kind of wanted to create. Hmm. And, and part of that's because, you know, I, I'm not the child of a manufacturing household, so I didn't grow up going to factories that produced, mm. um, you know, like processing raw materials on that scale. So part of writing the book was to share my process of learning, like what matters and what doesn't, um, because, you know, from the perspective of someone like you at sourcing for Pucka and finding that, you know, what are you looking for? And how do you know something's good? How do you know a relationship is worth pursuing even when it's not perfect? And how do you know when to let it go? So, mm-hmm. And then what is good and bad? And what's my naivete and what's actually good and bad? I mean, maybe just share a couple of things that you've seen along the way that you know maybe surprised you um, in in, the, in a good way and in in a shocking way, you know what's really going on in the herb industry on the ground. You know what's the scale you've seen and what are the different levels. So I remember coming back from the first trip and showing a video to another herbalist of echinacea being chopped in a machine mm. that had been delivered, and this was organically harvested echinacea, and she was shocked. I mean, I was no longer quite as shocked because 
I was learning to become unshocked, <laughs> but she was quite shocked as uh, by the abruptness, you know, that this violation, it seems of this plant. Um, and, and also how few echinacea heads, flower heads that were in what was being chopped. Um, that is something though, that I think that's the reality. The things that were su surprising, mo a lot of things in, well, in Bulgaria, we were driving on the, some highway and they were spreading herbs out on the road so that cars would drive over them and sort of mm. do the first layer of grind, you know, breaking them down. Free threshing. Yeah. And then um, something else in Bulgaria that drove home, like the huge inequities is the, you know, we had a really hard time observing much in Bulgaria and getting behind the surface um, of our trip. But the poverty that the wild harvesters mm. that I heard, I didn't really directly experience that. Um, and then the the factory that was doing the processing and the wealth that was in that factory. And so just like where, how in it, how the resources are distributed along the supply chain, you know, the top people at the top make a lot and the people at the bottom, not so much. And so that awareness, another thing in, um, India and south of Madurai, when a, a trader took us to show this warehouse where he had stored these huge piles of old, dry, dusty, mm. um, brown herbs. And I was there with a an Indian botanist who was translating and we were asking if this is what he would sell and he would sell to, you know, sort of a lot of the Ayurvedic companies in India. I don't think he sold internationally, but he said he would, these are the herbs he would sell, but if people ask for better quality, he would mix them with some herbs he had in a better storehouse. Um, so so, that, so that was the negative. Hmm. The positive were the quality of attention, hmm. um, you know, that I write about in my book, talking about how Ben and you were listening, visiting, engaging in the communities. Um, so, you know, we, we you're right to paint a slightly shocking picture. You know, there are, you know, um, billions of kilos of herbs traded around the world every year. We hardly know the status of most of the wild harvested plants, whether they're threatened or endangered, even though we know a high percentage are. Um, you know, what can we do about it, really? You know, what, what, do, what can we do as an industry? And then maybe we'll talk about what can people do as, you know, what can individuals do really to help bring about some of that change? Because you've had this amazing insight into seeing so many different countries and different species. And yeah, I'd love, what do you think we can do? Yeah, I think about this all the time. But a couple of things. First, I think, like me, uh, people buying herbs are quite naive and part and can be quickly judgmental about, you know, like that threshing of the echinacea, you know, that's a reality. It's, it's a lot bigger, in fact, mostly. So that's one thing I tried to do in my book and the sustainable herbs program, all the content that's directed at general audience and the herb community. It's really, you first have to understand what it takes to process this level of raw materials at scale um, so that you, you ask the right questions and and don't have unrealistic expectations. So that's part of it. Um, 
Another, I think, is focus. It's absolutely overwhelming, like trying to figure out how to begin. And so what I'm trying to do lately is focus on particular species. And because those are ways of illuminating both sort of the challenges, say, of working with smallholder farmers in India and how to do that in a good way and how to do that in a bad way, which is going to be different than working with wild harvesters in Eastern Europe, which is different than, you know, farmers in the United States. So each one has kind of different challenges and different things to support. So I'm trying to do these case studies of particular plants telling the stories of different sources of those plants to then when I'm teaching mostly to herb communities to say, so if you really care about smallholders in rural India, these are the questions you can ask, you know, are you ask, are they providing contracts or long-term, you know, what, what's the nature of the relationship? Um, so that's like education, but a specific education. Another thing that, that I'm really excited about is this group of about 10 of us through the sustainable herbs program that are gathering together some case studies of best practices and and really stories of partnerships that are addressing more than buying it's more than a transaction and really investing in that community and documenting the other ways that kind of partnership can have an impact in a community like skill building or um you know, these sort of different kinds of capitals, building infrastructure, you know, the different ways or just reinforcing the value of this work in communities where otherwise people don't value that work. And can those things, so we're, we're trying to document these like stories of these partnerships and in hopes of sort of inspiring other companies to, you know, just start a little, start small, but if more people are doing that kind of engagement that I observe that you all are doing, that Puck is doing, that I observe that traditional medicinals is doing in some of the communities where they work. And, and then, then you, and, and then another thing, I think maybe this is individuals, but when I think about what to me was most empowering about herbal medicine, it, or the, what another thing that drew me to herbal medicine was how empowering it was that I could make an echinacea tincture in my house with echinacea I grew. And one of the most disempowering things is going into the supplement aisle, at least in the US. And there's like 9 million brands telling me they're doing the best. And so how to turn that around so that that is an empowering experience. To me, it I think it's like digging into the issues and understanding, going kind of on a journey like, okay, I, I like elderberry, say, some plant that you use a lot. Obviously, you can't do them all, but pick one and kind of dig in, find out what the issues are, find a company who you think is trying to take care of the plants, take care of the people, and support them by buying their product, like the way you support your local radio station or something. But it's hard as an individual, isn't it? And as a, you know, as a customer, and you know, you've got a different day job than we do in a way. Um, you know, have to declare an interest. Obviously, I'm probably biased about this question and believing in organic and fair trade and fair wild. But you know, genuinely, you know, where do you see the the, the value of these certifications? And 
how much confidence can that give to customers um, and the companies that what they're doing is fulfilling that intention that you talked about this you know we're all trying to live up to that aspiration in a way aren't we my answers are from asking people like you you know people who are involved in this like what different certifications have made and i also come from the world of anthropology and social science which can be hypercritical especially in mm -hmm. fair trade and fair any kind of fair label in ways that um maybe go back to what I was saying about the naivete of the herb world. You know, there can be this easy to criticize, oh, you're not here without seeing, oh, well, you're here, which is higher. Sorry, I'm, mm -hmm. nobody can see, but, you know, <laughs> you're not perfect, but you're making progress. And so from what I've observed with certifications, they offer a, a company Sure, there's some that take advantage of it, but the, that in in embarking on becoming certified organic or embarking on becoming fair for life or fair wild, you are saying these values matter and that you are putting those practices in place to take care of the plants, take care of the soil, the water, the people, and that the you know these continuous improvement certifications that you're getting feedback and you take that feedback and you have to tweak the system to improve your mm -hmm. practices. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you see someone doesn't have a, and that's what I observed with you all in India, you know, when we were in the fair field mint site and Ben was asking, oh, so where's the buffer zone? Hmm, mm -hmm. The buffer zone is not quite as intact as it needs to be. And he made a note and, you know, then the idea is you work with that farmer and make sure the buffer zones get put in place and another thing Kevin Casey said, which I really like when he was talking about the value for them of becoming B certified B Corp, that it has raised the bar. And also for them with Fair for Life, you know, it raises the bar and keeps them working toward yeah. these bigger goals and, and makes sure that they are continuing to think about, are they living up to their principles? and getting that feedback. And so I like that because it was, and, and how you shared it, uh, the value of certifications at PACA as well, that it that's like an internal valuation. That's not yeah. full outward facing. Mm -hmm. And so as someone buying products, I, I buy certified products whenever I can, like on a baseline organic, um, Stephen Dantali said, regardless of the outcome of certified organic, it's about the world you want to call into being. And I want to call into being a world with less pesticides and fertilizer, less ingredients that yeah. are going to be poisoning us and making us not well or making, or even if those pesticides and fertilizers aren't present in the finished product, you know, in levels that are the EPA or whomever has decided are acceptable Somewhere, people along the way are being exposed to those chemicals. And so, to me, I don't understand how wellness products can be sold that people along the way are being poisoned or pollinators along the way are being poisoned. Like, well, COVID has taught us what we all should have known anyway, that we're all connected. And so you can't poison faraway places without that poison somehow coming back. What you're saying about, you know, continual improvement, you know, again, 
I think it's taking a you know fundamental principle, whether it's some Ayurveda or Chinese medicine or, or Western herbalism. You know, how do we do that individually ourselves? How are we always trying to improve? Whether it's our digestion or our calmness or our clarity or, or whatever it is, and I and I think it's that ability to yeah work together with communities, isn't it, to help. Um, you know, them understand your needs and, and you to understand their needs is how you're going to get one of the best uh, impacts. And it seems like we, we, we talk a lot about people in the herbal community, particularly the, the patient or the client or, or the person using the plants. And, you know, where do you think we're at in herbal collection communities? A big, broad question here and, and wild harvesting communities um, in terms of you, you were saying there that you know maybe fair trade gets a little bit of critique from certain sectors. You know what what can we be doing more in the herbal community to ensure that we're helping raise the standard of living and um, uh, welfare of the people we're working with? That's one of the things. So this the case studies I was talking about. How that came about was this group we were talking about the living income concept mm -hmm. of living income, yeah. which as a concept came about in part because of the critique of fair trade, because people realized that in fact, fair people selling, you know, involved in fair trade coffee didn't have enough food to live on the whole year. And so it's not just a wage, it's really people's ability to make a living. And so we were talking about, okay, what does that look like in the botanical industry, which is super complex, right? Because it's not just coffee that somebody could be involved with 10 different botanicals. And so how do you, how do you determine the way, the right price? And so with that, we were, the examples are really looking, say one is an example of herb farm working in Appalachia where they're just investing with one farmer to provide him with seed stock for cultivated golden seal. But that has bigger impacts on the there's a Appalachian sustainable development which is a processing facility there the fact that there's a contract with a national company is allowing them to get more funding to expand their processing which allows them to expand to other forest farmers mm -hmm. and then that there's like a mentorship program to pass on the traditional you know sort of cultivation practices of botanical medicines or other skills. So there are these ramifications of other impacts that around the things that matter to all of us, it's like, yes, money matters, but that we live in communities that are vibrant matter. And so that the schools are high quality, you know, that we have access to water, you know, there's other things that make a healthy community. And so how to think about that beyond just the price of the botanical? Is that a way maybe that the urban industry can better support those collection communities? Because um, from what the people I talk to, you know, that's a huge threat is um, that wild harvesting, no, people don't want to do that work anymore. You know, ultimately, once these um, skills have been shared and these contracts and partnerships have been secured, um, you know, do you, have you seen along your journey 
how that impacts the quality at the end. If we're if we're talking about that experience of the plant that we could have when you're sitting with a living plant, should we say, or, or drinking something fresh? Have, have you seen on, on this path how that impacts quality, perhaps, and the the fragrance, the color, the potential therapeutic component? I mean, I have in my, you know, I think, um, <clears throat> but I also. I also think of, well, just so thinking of, say, nettles that I buy mm. from different places around the U.S. or some that have been imported, huge quality difference, mm -hmm. and, you know, in the organoleptics and the smell yeah. and the taste and the color, vibrant mm. green versus kind of dusty brownish. And even from two farms in my area in northeastern U.S., um, one which is quite mechanized and includes the whole stem and one which is less mechanized and the less mechanized is what I prefer because it's, it feels more leaf, mm -hmm. um, more green. And then Tony Booker's study and article comparing the supply, the value network of from, he, does he name the company in the article? Uh, yes, he does. Okay, so from Pucka, and yeah. then from Turmeric Bought on the Open Market, and because, and I thought that was brilliant, actually, that study, because because the farmers had a secure contract to sell to you all, then they sold them in time, right? And then the others were stored until the because of the fluctuating price, mm. and so they were stored in questionable conditions sold when the price was better and then the quality was down. I mean, to me, that seems like such a no-brainer, though, that how you handle botanicals is going to impact the quality. That it's interesting that a whole industry has been developed that doesn't have that awareness at its core, right? I mean, they, the, I guess the company started by herbalists. I think in that instance... You know, turmeric is a commodity, a global commodity. It's a very cheap spice to buy in the food sector. And so it's mainly used for the food sector. And so, and therefore it gets traded as a commodity. So the price fluctuates. And I think, again, it comes back to this marginalization of herbalism the last hundred or so years. The, the industry hasn't been able to develop uh, with the resources and the focus that you might have you know, wanted it to in lots of ways, although obviously the last 25 years or so, we've seen incredible transformation where, you know, herbal is driving lots of growth in all sorts of sectors uh, because of its focus on quality. But I, I think with the closure of lots of the eclectic organizations in the States and some of the uh, uh, British and European uh, regulations through the early part of the last century have, have limited that development. Because lots of it comes from the wild as well, I think that has also led to this um, complex relationship we have as urban sort of civilization with the wild. And it's almost um, seen as a, um, something that might come with a few flaws, should we say. And so therefore, that, that can be tidied up through the warehouse or the machinery or something like that. Um, and I think that's what a lot of... I have a lot of the food industry works. I mean, you know, you don't get your your carrots or your potatoes fresh out of the ground. They've come through a chain and they've been cleaned and washed and tidied up. And, you know, we get to see a fairly uh, sort of a bit of a veneer in, in lots of ways, don't we? And 
I think one of the beauties about organic farming is that it creates that relationship and that and that instant connection, which I think is inherent in herbalism as a principle, but hasn't been in the the agricultural side once you get beyond a certain scale, perhaps. And because it's global by nature, because you can't, you know, herbalist uses maybe three hundred species of plants. You know, there's a lot of that's a lot more diverse than our food is. You know, we're eating maybe twenty ingredients or something most of the time, maybe fifty. But so there's a, it's very diverse, and that that brings risks and challenges. But I think um, that we know what to do. A high percentage of people are doing it. There's some very high grade uh, uh, products, herbs uh, grown and traded. The strict regulations um, that need to be applied as well. Uh, it's just that it is a growing industry, isn't it? Under you know, working in in lots of countries that are, you know, socially there are there are pressures there as well. So, I love the light you shine on the herbalist and the herbal community to help help us all do better, really, and to very kindly and compassionately point out where there might be some areas needed to improve. And also, yeah, forcefully call us out really as a as an area where we could be more collaborative, or where we could, you know, help the growers more, or the, the collectors more, or um, educate the consumer more. Because as we know, it, it's it's not it costs more to do things to a high standard to redistribute income for a living uh, income living wage you know there is a there is a there is a cost there but i i think what you do at the um, sustainable herds program is you know a, a big inspiration for me and i've certainly learned lots from um uh, getting to know you and and the organization and so you know what's next do you think Anne? what what would you like to manifest next you seem to be good at uh, <laughs> going on a journey and exploring uh, difficult areas what what do you want to happen with the sustainable health project next well right now you know i'm in the process of kind of pulling together a lot of things so that's really been mm. my focus but and i'm just back from expo west especially on climate day which was quite there were some quite inspiring conversations because they talked about both the, the logistics aspect of mostly this is in the food sourcing, you know, the things that have usually been part of Climate Day about regenerative farming practices and, and equity and incorporating those. Then there was also about the cultural and, and this remarkable, I'm not sure what community he's from, but up in the Arctic, he zoomed in, who was quite powerful talking about like the the cultural and spiritual moment of time and how we all need to act. And then also this rapper reverend who spoke. And so, you know, it, it brought in like the whole body, mind, spirit. And mm. I want the sustainable herbs program to have the resources to be really engaging in those conversations more actively. And I think that's a process of getting robust enough mm to do that because I think again to go back to that the wisdom of the plants and the spirit of the plants there is something at the heart of herbal medicine that's different than the food movement and and the, the, I was on a I moderated a panel with Gaia that was around the plant intelligence and the framework of that panel actually 
was brilliant because it included starting with that, you know, Gaia, the Gaia hypothesis and the aliveness of the world and how that manifests through the, the vision and the practice, realizing that the practice is a journey of continual improvement, that they're not there yet, but around quality, around sourcing, around equity, and um, to have more companies engaging in that way. And so to be part of that, that's, I guess, my vision. Mm. Sounds brilliant. I mean, you know, if the values are deep and embedded, if you learn the values from herbalism, in this case, if we look at those, and then bring that into your practice, your clinic, your sourcing, your, you know, your, your buying and blending and manufacturing, then you, then you will, then you will meet, meet that goal in a way. And, you know, you've developed some great videos and tools on your website. So I just really encourage anybody that's interested in finding out more about where the herbs come from, you know, if they're, you know, how to buy them better, how, you know, how to understand that value chain more. I'd really encourage you to go to the, go to the website because uh, it's a, a font of information. And I think that's a beautiful vision. And I will do my utmost to help you achieve it as well, because I think it's uh, essential. And uh, well, I've loved hearing from you. It's really nice to talk like this. And uh, yeah, thank you for everything you do. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you. And thank you for all that you're doing, like weaving different worlds together and providing the kinds of content in one place. You know, often that can be separate through mm. the Herbal Reality site. Mm, thank you. You've been listening to The Herbcast, the podcast from Herbal Reality. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, perhaps you'd like to leave us a rating. That would really help us to spread our message for herbal health. We hope you'll join us again for the next episode. And in the meantime, if you'd like a few more herbal insights from us, do have a look at herbalreality.com. We'll learn more from us via Instagram, where we're at herbal.reality. And we're on Twitter and Facebook too. We'll be back with another episode of The Herbcast soon. Thanks for joining. Thank you.